We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of Flash Gordon on December 5th, 1980. It was written by Lorenzo Semple Jr., based on an adaptation by Michael Allen, with characters by Alex Raymond, directed by Mike Hodges, produced by Dino De Laurentiis, and released by Universal Pictures. August of 1928 marked the first appearance of Philip Francis Nolan's Buck Rogers in Amazing Stories magazine. Five-ish years later, William Randolph Hearst's King Features wanted a franchise to rival Buck Rogers and got in touch with Edgar Rice Burroughs intending to purchase the rights to John Carter of Mars, but they could not come to an agreement. Instead, staff artist Alex Raymond was charged with developing their own space-age superhero. Raymond borrowed several story elements, an approaching planet threatening Earth, an athletic hero, his girlfriend, and a scientist traveling to another planet by rocket to stop them from Philip Wiley's 1933 novel, When Worlds Collide. King Features turned down his first draft, asking for more action sequences, and Raymond partnered with ghostwriter Don Moore, an experienced editor and writer, and published the first strip in January of 1934. It did exactly what Hearst wanted. It was well-received by readers and resulted in licensed products like pop-up and coloring books, toy spaceships, and ray guns. In the original strip, Flash Gordon was a polo player, but that was obviously a much less popular sport. In the 80s, Flash Gordon was first adapted to film in the 30s and 40s for serials starring Buster Crabbe, in Flash Gordon 1936, Flash Gordon's Trip to Mars in 1938, and Flash Gordon Conquers the Universe in 1940. In 39, right in the middle of this trilogy of Flash Gordons, Buster Crabbe also played Buck Rogers, the star of the franchise that Flash Gordon was ripping off. In 1974, six years prior to the release of this film, a porn parody version of the Flash Gordon story was released called Flesh Gordon. It was very popular, and... Anybody who's ever worked at a video store has probably hoped at some point that this film was accidentally rented in place of the other one, or vice versa. Wait, what year did that one come out? 74. That was prior to this one. Yes. Okay, so it was just a general parody on the character. Because I, I right. didn't know... It followed what... the story of the serials, which is basically the same as the story of this movie. Okay, yeah, I, I haven't seen it, <laughs> and I just assumed that it was a direct parody of this movie, no. but it's just a general... Yeah, okay. just just uh, the, the Flash Gordon origin story. In 1976, producer Lou Scheimer was trying to lock down funding for a Flash Gordon animated movie of the week when he turned to veteran producer Dino De Laurentiis, who agreed to help in exchange for the rights to a theatrical release. Excited at the prospect of profiting from a theatrical release, NBC shelved the animated special until after this film hit home video. So it ended up coming out like a full decade after they intended for it to huh. come out. De Laurentiis intended to employ Federico Fellini to adapt the film. Fellini did option the rights, at which time an up-and-coming filmmaker by the name of George Lucas was desperate to adapt the serial into a film. 
Fellini had been a fan of the strip since childhood and even contributed to a Flash Gordon knockoff strip after Mussolini banned the originals in Italy. (laughs) The rights having been optioned by Fellini, George Lucas instead set about writing his own Flash Gordon, which is a ripoff of a ripoff now. (laughs) So he made a movie called The Adventures of Luke Starkiller as taken from the Journal of the Wills, Saga 1, The Star Wars, which was, of course, later shortened to Kangaroo Jack. No, uh, Star Wars. <laughs> when Fellini optioned... But I thought Star Wars was based off of, like... A... It's, a, it's a retelling of the story of the Hidden Fortress. Yeah. But it was his take his on answer to the Space Age movie. I can't yeah. have Flash Gordon. Yeah, this is my Flash Gordon. When Fellini's option expired, De Laurentiis took the rights to Nicholas Rogue, who we just had direct bad timing. He was selected on the strength of his 70s titles Don't Look Now and The Man Who Fell to Earth. Rogue spent a year in pre-production on the film, but De Laurentiis was unhappy with his treatment, deeming it too intellectual, and they parted ways. Rogue's version would evidently have cast Debbie Harry as Aura and Keith Carradine as Ming. I really like Debbie Harry as Aura. Mm -hmm. I think that would be fun to see. Yeah, but I can see how that would have been a much different film. Yes, very much so. It also had like a bunch of weird religious messages to it, which I think they kind of ditched for this draft. De Laurentiis offered the director's chair next to Sergio Leone, who felt that De Laurentiis's angle on the story was a betrayal of Alex Raymond's comic strip. Director Mike Hodges, who was originally lined up to direct the second installment of a three-film Flash Gordon trilogy, was then brought on to direct the first installment, and he kept it fairly close to what De Laurentiis wanted for it. The director thought that a comedic take was possible, but a bad choice for such a high-budget film. Wait. I'm sorry. So this was or was not a comedic take on it? It was. Okay. Just making sure. I wasn't. I, it's one of those films that I'm not sure. If, if they're trying to be funny or not. they were trying to be funny or not. <laughs> I think there's a few moments where it's made pretty clear. Before approaching Queen about performing the original music for the soundtrack, the director wanted Pink Floyd... Dino De Laurentiis had apparently never even heard of Queen, and he didn't like the music they provided until everyone else loved it. Freddie Mercury even had a graphic design background and developed the logo himself for the soundtrack album sleeve. What? And they used it for all the advertising for the movie. That's awesome. In casting, the lead Arnold Schwarzenegger was considered, but dismissed on account of his still a bit difficult to understand accent. De Laurentiis had always wanted Kurt Russell for the part, but Russell read the script and turned it down because the main character is an idiot and there's absolutely nothing to him. He's paper thin. Yeah. Dino De Laurentiis' mother-in-law called him to say that she saw Sam J. Jones on an episode of The Dating Game and recommended him for the part. <laughs> Dale Haddon was initially cast as the female lead and was probably told to lose some weight before production began, but arrived on the set emaciated and was replaced with Melody Anderson when producers feared that Dale, whose name was actually Dale, had mm. lost too much weight. That is so cruel. Yeah. Just give her a sandwich, man. Yeah. How hard is that? She later sued the production for failing to compensate her for the breach of contract. Unclear the results of that suit. Sam Jones bleached his hair and Melody Anderson dyed hers, so they swapped hair colors for the film. Dennis Hopper was considered for the Dr. Zarkov role, but I think Topol's great. Um, I think he's one of the perfectly cast people in this mm-hmm. movie. Uh, the only actor to receive near-universal praise for his performance was Max von Sydow, Though I would argue that Timothy Dalton and Brian Blessed both play their parts beautifully also. Uh, one critic did call out the bizarre choice of not hiring an Asian-American actor for the Ming role. So it's impressive to see that in 1980 that was getting called out already. Yeah. But Maybe. is Ming Asian? He's an alien. He's, he's, <laughs> he's Ming. His name is Ming. He has 
oriental facial makeup and his planet is called mongo it's clearly a reference to the mongols when did the mongols rule china i don't know i just work here sam jones was notorious for getting into fights on and off set throughout the production one of the fights resulted in a large scrape across his face and de laurentis reportedly stormed into the operating room to assure that doctors could fix it and avoid any continuity errors in the film fix a scrape yeah they were like how bad is it what can you do to make it look as good as possible? If he's in an operating room, it sounds like it was pretty bad. Yeah. Well, I don't know if he was in there for the scrape or for something that wasn't on his face. Or maybe they meant the, the weird table with the hands that hold him down. Maybe it wasn't the actual <laughs> operating room. <Yeah>. Relax, <laughs> it's makeup. Go away, Dino. <laughs> Sam Jones stopped working partway through the production and was sued by De Laurentiis. He countersued, claiming that his agreed-upon salary payment schedule was not being adhered to. He was barred from the set and from doing any post work. As a result, he was unavailable to record ADR lines, and almost half of his dialogue is provided by actor Peter Marinker. That makes so much more sense. Yeah, because it's <laughs> way too high pitch for his body. The finished film was nominated for Saturn Awards and BAFTAs, but won none of them. Sam J. Jones received a Razzie nomination for his portrayal of the title character Flash Gordon. Over the years, many reboots and sequels have been discussed. One with Matthew Vaughn and talks to direct, and more recently with Julius Avery recruited as a director. The latest I heard was of Taika Waititi being attached to an animated reboot of the story, but uh, they didn't say specifically what his position would be in on that film other than producing. Uh, it, maybe he was going to write and direct it, but as soon as Thor Love and Thunder got greenlit, uh, it basically got dumped with the Disney Fox merger. So as far as I know, that project is now canceled. Mm-hmm. So somebody please pick it up and do it. I think that this is prime right it, now. Yeah, it's they, right it, ha- it. It, has to, it has to be done, and it could be done really great with some of the... I think do it in the same style, though, as the 1981, the, the comedic elements is the way to go for it. Oh, yeah. I think it's definitely got to... It's got to have a strong basis in this version of it. I was sure. going to say maybe James Gunn would be the perfect choice, but mm-hmm. it's maybe too close to Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. But I would still want, like the plywood sets yeah that'd be painted fun. over yeah. you can see like the wood grain yeah. still is yeah. like a yeah. like a higher budget lost skeleton of cadaver type mm-hmm. thing i could even see a, a phil lord chris miller version of this sure and they would do a really fascinating animated one yeah that would be good we start in space uh i was really disappointed that we didn't just go from the universal logo to crosshairs on the earth mm-hmm. but uh we get there two separate shots we see the universal logo of earth and then we have another shot of earth and it's suddenly in crosshairs, and we hear the voice of Ming the Merciless. Clytus, I'm bored. What plaything can you offer me today? An obscure body in the SK system, Your Majesty. The inhabitants refer to it as the planet Earth. How peaceful it looks. Ming uses a ring to activate an earthquake button, which presumably didn't say earthquake until just a second ago when Clytus <laughs> revealed the name of the planet. Ming and Clytus laugh at the resulting destruction. We get stock footage of buildings collapsing. <laughs> Most effective, your majesty. Will you destroy this uh, earth? Later. I like to play with things a while. Before annihilation. <laughs> Queen's kick-ass title theme rumbles into our ears over a montage of art from the comics. Ah! 
we also get clips of Ming trying out other buttons on his ship, hurricane, volcanic eruption, and finally hot hail, yeah. which we will learn means <laughs> blasting chunks off of the moon and sending them rocketing mm-hmm. down to the Earth's surface. Um, it, It's weird choices, though. Like for Earthquake, like they showed like stock footage of buildings collapsing yeah that are clearly just being like demolished right but for volcano they just cut to like some b-movie footage of a volcano Mm -hmm. erupting it's like you don't have any actual volcano erupting footage it hadn't happened yet this is pre-pompeii but mount saint helens just erupted this year we should have footage of that right well it might have been too late (laughs) i don't know maybe it was coming didn't they um, they had they had their suspicions it was coming, but it w- there's definitely footage of it. Yeah, there, there's there's they knew it was coming, but it was also one of those things like, oh, the volcano's not going to erupt. I'm staying in my home right here. So it's like when time ran out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We see Flash Gordon sitting in a car listening to sports radio when a quick flurry of hail dumps all around him. But I don't think this is the hot hail. No, it's normal hail. This is just regular <laughs> hail here, which is confusing is after cold seeing hail. the hot hail. But I guess you would call it. Uh, that might have seemed redundant until you heard of hot hail. But now we have to say cold hail. <laughs> a van from Dark Harbor pulls up alongside of his car, and travel agent Dale Arden steps out. Evidently, they will be sharing a private plane today. They lock eyes as she exits her van and heads to the Green Mountain Airways plane on the runway. Standing by the plane is a very young Robbie Coltrane, ready to load their luggage. This was only his second film. The plane takes off as the real hot hail begins to fall. They look like smoldering balls of red-hot rock. The pilots run into some turbulence as the disembodied voice of Ming laughs at them. Flash pops into the cockpit to ask what's going on, and one of the pilots, who we just saw reading a People magazine with Flash on the cover, makes a football joke. Nothing serious. Nothing you'd want to toss a third down pass through, either. He asks Flash to sign his magazine for his son Buzz before returning to the controls. Dale asks him to stop bothering the pilots because she's not handling this turbulence very well. (laughs) They're flying the bus. Yeah. Flash tries to calm her down. They start to introduce themselves, but Dale already knows who Flash is because he's a celebrity. And Flash already knows who she is because he asked the maitre d' at their hotel who she was when he saw her there. He couldn't believe that she was alone. And she thinks he's just flirting to make her feel better. Gordon tells her he's taking flying lessons and tries to talk her through what's happening to the plane when the entire thing is suddenly glowing red and everyone tears off their clothes to have sex with each other. Oh, wait, no, that's in the the other movie, (laughs) Flesh Gordon. In this one, thick clouds roll in to block out the sun and we cut to Dr. Zarkov's laboratory slash observatory slash launch site slash greenhouse where hot hail is barreling through the glass ceiling and setting fire to the bedding of Zarkov's fully dressed and sleeping assistant Munson. I feel like I need to just adopt this as like an exclamation that i use hot hail (laughs) yeah (laughs) hot ham water he seems confused at the darkness because it's 8 24 a.m but there's no sunlight he quickly wakes dr zarkov dr zarkov there's no sun it's 8 24 in the morning and there's no sun no sun no check the angular vector of the moon a news broadcast playing on a television in zarkov's lab provides some exposition Dr. Zarkov was dumped by NASA for his predictions of an invading force from space. It seems from today's readings that he was less crazy than anticipated. He probably wants to be upset about the invasion, but he's too overjoyed at being right about the invasion. NASA is trying to assure the public that today's unscheduled solar eclipse is no cause for alarm. When his assistant confirms that the moon is 12 degrees out of orbit, 
Zarkov is very excited. What do you find? The moon out of orbit? By more than 12 degrees. This must be a mistake. That's no mistake. It's an attack. Hot Hail continues blasting into the lab, and Zarkov recognizes the rocks as moon fragments somehow. He tells his assistant Munson that they will solve this problem from space, and Munson is less than eager to board Zarkov's untested spaceship. For extra convincing, Zarkov pulls a gun on him and says, Get your toothbrush and whatever. <laughs> and, and I mean, Munson had to know that this was coming. They built a spaceship in the lab. I think that he never expected any to ever have to use it. He was like, the he couldn't stick it out at NASA. He got the next best job, which was with Zarkov in the middle mm-hmm. of nowhere, where he, has to, he doesn't have to pay rent because he sleeps in the lab. And he just didn't think that any of this would ever come to fruition. But here Munson just tries to make a run for it. And it reminds me a bit of the Howard Hughes, Mr. Burns bit. We'll take the spruce moose. Hop in. But sir. I said hop in. (laughs) We cut back to Flash's plane just as the pilots are raptured out of the cockpit by Ming's face. Yeah. Yeah. So is he doing this all over the world? Like just like every plane lost its pilots or or just just random people being just eliminated it's definitely widespread turbulence that he's Mm. causing this isn't just local to this plane because he doesn't know that flash is important at all right exactly Mm -hmm. so maybe he just um thanos he just thanos everyone yeah maybe (laughs) flash takes the controls and makes an effort to land the plane unfortunately his flying lessons haven't gotten that far flash tries to level out the plane and crashes it directly into zarkov's laboratory greenhouse like he was aiming for it (laughs) munson tries to run away from the encroaching plane but is not fast enough and the plane crushes him to death i missed that part yeah they don't like (laughs) highlight it at all but he's running through the greenhouse to stay ahead of the plane and then we cut inside the cockpit and then we see the characters get out and munson's just gone (laughs) we never see him again so he got crushed by the front of this plane as it was skidding into the lab and even if he didn't he got burned alive by the rocket exhaust yeah but i'm i'm convinced that flash just smashed this guy (laughs) he's practicing for the spoiler alert. exactly for the later later attack flash and dale hop out of the top of the plane Zarkov hides his gun behind his back and points to the rocket, pretending it's a phone booth that they can use to call for help. <laughs> Inside the quote-unquote phone booth rocket, Dale tells Flash that she recognizes that man as Dr. Hans Zarkov, a crazy scientist she saw on television. He overhears that he's been recognized and tries to lock them in the rocket. He tries to kick Flash out, but Flash tackles Zarkov, and all three of them are launched together when Flash throws Zarkov's head against the launch button. They all buckle in quickly, and Flash is instructed to keep his feet on the red pedals in front of him to prevent everyone's death by G-forces. As they rocket into the sky through the glass ceiling of the lab like a Wonkavator, Zarkov, who has predicted an alien invasion for decades, nonsensically implies that this ship was only built to make friends in space. <laughs> friendship. Built this to send in friendship. We get some Queen guitar strumming as the boosters separate from the ship in the upper atmosphere, the ship drifts through the Imperial Vortex. A man with technology installed over his eyes identifies the intruding ship and announces it to Ming. Ming scans the ship and orders his men to land it safely by a tractor beam. It skids across the rocky surface of Mongo, just outside Ming's castle, where it is approached by a contingent of Ming's soldiers. Flash pops out of the capsule to talk to the Sniffit in charge and is shot with a handgun, 
by which I mean the gun launches a five-fingered metal hand <laughs> directly into his hand, which shocks him with electricity, like he's Acme or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Flash is launched into a front flip, and on the ground, a second gauntlet wraps around his neck. The prisoners are brought to Ming, and in an elevator on the way, Zarkov compliments their level of technology. He thinks it's likely these people can be reasoned with. They're led through a wide door where they meet a flying orb robot who tells the guards to stand still and instructs the prisoners to follow. As the orb walks them down the hall, a lizard man tries to break loose past them and is quickly vaporized for his insolence. These lizard guides are weird. Their eyes are like inside their mouths. Yeah. Yeah. They agree to follow the orb to Ming and Zarkov brags, don't worry, I have a gun in my pocket if things go south on us. The robot promptly zaps the gun out of existence. Some hawkmen enter Ming's throne room. They face off with other groups here to see him. Flash, Zarkon, and Dale enter. And then Ming enters, and everyone says, Hail Ming! We see Ming's daughter peeking around a corner at Flash with flirty eyes. Clytus invites the different groups to present their tributes to Ming. Ming's costume in this scene weighed 70 pounds. Wow. And he could only stand for a couple minutes at a time. Jeez. On behalf of the Hawkmen, Prince Vulton presents the fabled Ice Jewel of Phrygia. He's just about to hand it over when the Arboreans enter, led by Prince Baron, and claim that the Ice Jewel was stolen from them and that it was supposed to be their tribute. Baron and Vulton clash, but Clytus tells them, no one dies in this palace without orders from Ming. Hail Ming! Between the two of them, Vulton seems more eager to disobey the instructions until Clytus points to Vultan's daughter, who they have hostage, and he pipes down. Hail Ming. Prince Thun of Ardentia is next to speak. He informs Ming that since their kingdom was blasted by Ming and they weren't provided any sort of reparations, that they have nothing to offer as tribute but their loyalty. Ming makes the prince prove his loyalty by committing suicide here in the throne room. Prince Thun marches up to Ming and prepares to sacrifice himself for his people, but at the last second swings his sword at Ming, where he's frozen in place by the flying orb. If he'd thrown the sword, he might still have gotten Ming. Yeah. He didn't do that. I also want to point out that Prince Baron uh, got out of giving any kind of tribute. By, by just cl- saying, that was ours. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, he could have had to like kill himself here, but <laughs> he was spared that. Ming pries Thun's fingers from around the blade and then plunges it deep in Thun's chest. His blue blood drips from the sword. Flash can't help but blurt out, this Ming is a psycho, and the orb broadcasts his comment to the entire room. Flash and his friends are ordered to the head of the throne room, and the princess walks alongside them, dragging her pet named Fellini after the former potential director of the film. Who are you? Flash Gordon. Quarterback, New York Jets. Dale Arden, your highness. Live and let live. That's my motto. My name is Hans Zarkov. I'm a scientist. I kidnapped them here in an effort to save our planet Earth. Ming calls Dale forward, and when she refuses, he hypnotizes her with his ring. She seems aroused by this process. Did you ever see such response? No, truly. She even rivals your daughter. <laughs> this seems like another Flesh Gordon moment. Yes, it does. There's a lot of those in this, actually. When Dale's red glow fades away, she seems to wake up from the trance. Ming orders Dale separated from her friends. Remove the Earth Woman. Prepare her for our pleasure. Flash gets in the way of the Royal Guard, intending to defend Dale, and is suddenly fighting five men at once. Flash is knocked to the floor, 
and confused for a moment until Dr. Zarkov steals a large green egg-looking thing and then tosses it to Flash as a weapon. Flash wakes up with a ball and decides he must be playing football like he's just waking up from a coma on the field, and he blasts through a big line of all these guards. Prince Voltan trips one of them discreetly to help Flash. Ming doesn't understand why Flash is able to defeat his soldiers. Are your men on the right pills? Maybe you should execute that traitor. Among the tribes who did not present tributes are people in human-sized condoms, <laughs> dwarves dressed in glittery sandwich board robes, and people draped in gold carrying these giant green egg things. Flash bounces the egg off of several soldiers and rolls under them to trip them when Dr. Zarkov tries to throw the ball at an enemy and then knocks out Flash cold. The fight is over. The Hawkmen share a glance like, man, we should have done something there. The princess convinces her father to spare Flash. She promises to handle Prince Baron if he gets upset about it, but Ming refuses because he's dishonored him in front of all of his the people that he rules over and he can't have this encouraged. Dale is off to the Pleasure Dome. Zarkov is being sent to Clytus's lab for conditioning and Flash is due for public execution at 2915 Mingo Mean Time. <laughs> Princess Aura tells Prince Baron to fly back to Arborea and she'll see him soon. Lying bitch. I'll come if you rock it there right away. Why? I have a surprise for you. Don't you love me? I don't trust you. In the dungeon, Flash's head is trapped in a giant steel dreidel with spikes. He demands to see the governor of all people for some reason. I demand to see the governor! And for his final request, Flash asks to see Dale and Clytus concedes. Yeah, that's what I thought you were going to ask for. Send her in here. With a zap of his laser pointer, he removes Flash's helmet so you can actually see her while they talk. He gives them until the sands of an hourglass run out to speak to each other and then turns the hourglass upside down so that the sand can flow upward. Flash and Dale agree that this is all a dream they'll wake up from. But if it's not, Dale has to do everything. Save the world, please. Ming has two sets of personal guards, half in red, half in blue, with Judge Dread helmets and M. Bison-looking uniforms. A parade of drummers lead Flash to the small transparent dome where he is to be executed. He's wearing a tight golden speedo. The guards in the funeral parade are wearing red cloaks with hoods and golden skull face masks. The, the, the costumes alone for this film are great. And and not, not only that, but all the costume changes yeah. that so many of the main characters go through. Pretty impressive, the work they did. Princess Aura notices water leaking from Dale's eyes. It's what they call tears. It's a sign of their weakness. The doctor in charge of the execution gives Flash an injection first, and then the gas is released. We learn from a quick line of dialogue that this doctor is one of many of Princess Aura's suitors. The transparent dome fills with yellow gas and Flash is killed. We cut directly to henchmen polishing a badass headstone yeah. that reads Flash Gordon, Earthling, executed by Ming. Like, I love... I love how classy Ming is. Yeah, like, <laughs> that's a lot of effort. Yeah, it's like get, make sure he he gets a really cool tombstone. Yeah, uh, I'm just realizing I want my tombstone to read Patrick O'Reilly, Earthling, executed by Ming. If this is at all possible, <laughs> the Doctor and Princess Aura enter the chamber and open the coffin. The Doctor injects Flash with a revival serum and then runs away to avoid being caught. Princess Aura kisses Flash and runs a hand the length of his body to wake him up, 
under a moaning song from Queen. Once Flash awakens, she tells him that she saved him because she loves him. She gets him a uniform to blend in, though he's the only blonde guy on this whole planet. She promises not to watch him change, but then looks into the reflective lid of his coffin, and he catches her staring. Don't worry, I won't look. I like you a lot. She's taking him to the moon Arborea to meet with the Arboreans, and specifically Prince Baron. She assures him that people there will help because the Baron does everything she asks. They sneak past the laboratory where Zarkov is being conditioned. Ming explains his entire plot to the restrained doctor. Apparently he visits civilizations and attacks them with random astronomical events to see if they even notice. If they don't, then he's like, okay, they're idiots, and then if they do, he thinks they're a threat to him. In this case, he calls upon the great god Daizan, which, according to IMDb trivia, is Japanese for great cruelty, though I was not able to confirm that by any translation program I could find, <laughs> uh, and he destroys the planet utterly. Zarkov understands this to mean that he personally has doomed Earth to destruction, though even without his predictions, Earth would have noticed that these were not natural events, so Zarkov shouldn't take it too personally. You mean hot hail doesn't happen every day here? Yeah, I think scientists <laughs> would have been like, that eclipse is weird. Whether or not they knew that it was Ming, they would have taken notice. They slide a ray up to his face, which will empty his mind and then refill it with programming for the Ming army. Don't do that. Please, I beg you. My mind is all I have. I spent my whole life trying to fill it. When Ming leaves the room, he leaves General Kala in charge of the mind erasure procedure. They zap his brain with a laser, and we watch his memories play out in third person somehow on a monitor in the lab. We see him working with Munson, resigning from NASA, even though we heard he was fired, moving through a park with his wife Linda, and then he and his friend, as a joke, threw his wife in a pool, and she couldn't swim, and she drowned? drowned. Yeah. So Zarkov killed his own wife? <laughs> what the it's hell? Called, it's called manslaughter. It's a woman when slaughter. But when it's not intentional. Oh. Well, we don't know that. But we see him fishing her dead body out of this pool. We see her funeral, and then suddenly, like, photographs of Churchill and Einstein and then Nazis and Hitler. Clytus seems particularly impressed here. Mm. Now he showed promise. We go back further to World War II, and we see the bombings on Zarkov's family. And then we see his father, played by the same actor. We see his mother... And then we are a fetus in a womb being born. Yeah, the the order here is a little weird because we seem to be going backwards yeah. in time. Shouldn't we have started with the dead wife? <laughs> yeah, and, I, and not seen her thrown into the pool and then her funeral. <laughs> yeah, well, I also think it's weird that we see the fetus and then we see it being born and then we're back as a fetus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, there we had a, like a false alarm. I got half born once. <laughs> it, it, put it me was, back in. It, it's memento rules. Yeah. Where. The movie is going backwards, but you keep seeing it in 10-minute forward segments. Yeah, just so you can understand what's happening, even if the character's not supposed to. Clytus tells Kala that Zarkov's mind can only hold up to level 3 programming, but when he leaves, she demands he be programmed to level 6, either intending to destroy his brain or confident he'll survive the procedure. This, this seems an uncharacteristic move for this person, because she seems hyper-loyal throughout the rest of the movie, and this seemed like a semi-insurgent she's hyper loyal to ming mm. not to Clytus. and there were scenes that were cut that implied that the two of them are kind of head-to-head -head fighting for the role of second in command okay and so they're always trying to outdo each other but what were the implications of actually going to level six because i feel like this has no payoff 
Yeah, it doesn't really. I mean, one way or another, like he doesn't he doesn't fail to be you know leveled up, or he doesn't successfully get to levels. Like I don't know what happens to his mind. Yeah. I'm confused. We cut to Flash with Princess Aura in the rocket to the moon Arborea. She's teaching him how to fly the ship, but also making out with him, so he's unable to concentrate. They float past these rocky chunks in the sky, and Flash asks what it is, to which Princess Aura responds, That's the planet Aquaria. I feel like planet is the wrong word, because we're still in the atmosphere of the planet Mongo, and these things are like cone-shaped rocks. They're not In the clouds. It's, yeah, it's not planets. <laughs> And also, Aquaria is a bad choice for something that couldn't possibly hold water because well, it's I, just an oddly shaped rock. I, I think I think it's as much the planet Aquaria as the planet Alderaan is yeah. when the Millennium Falcon arrives and it's just rocks. Yeah. yeah. They take a left over Phrygia, the frozen planet, to find Arborea. Her father keeps all these different territories at war with each other so they don't fight him. She offers one day to take Flash to her moon called Scythera. In More Dale. like Sifora. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they should have called it in the Flesh Gordon movie, but they don't make a syphilis joke in there because they're dumb. In Dale's royal chambers, she has brought a green fluid by one of her chambermaids and asks what it is. It'll make your nights with Ming more agreeable. Will it make me forget? No, but it will make you not mind remembering. Dale just starts chugging the stuff and even compliments the flavor. She's like, all right, whatever. Like, she seems throughout the whole movie completely ready to marry Ming and be a good wife to him. Yeah. Back on the ship, Princess Aura prepares to send thoughts telepathically to Baron, letting them know that they're coming, when Flash says, hey, can I send some thoughts to Dale? Let her know I'm alive. And when Princess Aura refuses, he just tries to crash the ship until she's like, okay, fine, okay, fine. What are we going to do? Okay, here, let me let me put on your helmet. And then you just think the stuff to her. And somehow Dale is able to send messages back without any equipment on her end. Yeah. Uh, but she's ecstatic to learn that he's alive. Flash continues sending thoughts to her and punctuates every sentence with over as though they're talking on walkie-talkies. <laughs> I um, feel like after chugging a whole gallon of this green liquid, I wouldn't trust anything that I'm experiencing. That's true, yeah. <laughs> Where are you? In a rocket, racing to Arborea to get help. Are you okay? Over? All through this conversation, Princess Aura is just kissing Flash all over his face, and he accidentally thinks to Dale. Oh my god, this girl's really turning me on. I, I didn't quite get that. Think it again. Forget I thought it. It wasn't about you. Over. What? Good save. <laughs> like the one part you didn't have to say was it wasn't about you yeah because then she would have just thought you were being flattering but yeah. then at the last second you're like oh no it's definitely someone else <laughs> when you send the wrong text to somebody it's like oh sorry that text was meant for someone else yeah but it was like something really revealing yeah. or provocative uh they end the call with one another as a chambermaid enters with a second picture of roofies and this time Dale shares it with the chambermaid so they can trade costumes. A pair of henchmen quiz the conditioned Dr. Zarkov on his official title. Agent Zarkov, number 2133 of the Imperial Anti-Insurgent Espionage Group. Hail Ming! Good. So something got into his brain. Yeah, but like, spoiler alert, we find out that he's, he's not, actually not brainwashed. been programmed. So he, he just got more knowledge. That's but all he, he must know something because he's playing along convincingly yeah he should yeah. he should know more about how their palace works well and and the, this is why i thought initially that the female general was uh 
trying to, to pull some play on the side. Oh, okay. Because his first response is Hans Zarkov, and he realizes... And they're like, who? And he's like, uh, uh, Agent Hans Zarkov. Yeah, yeah. He he has to correct himself because he is pretending. Yeah. But he's also... He didn't make up number 2133 of the Imperial Anti-Insurgent Espionage Group. Like, right. The moon of Arborea looks like a forest on the inside of a destroyed moon. It's like a, a, a half of a sphere and it's concave and just completely filled with trees. Uh, it looks like a mix between Dagobah and Endor when they get closer to it. Ming enters Dale's chambers, ready for love, and finds the chambermaid wearing Dale's outfit, but with her head under a pillow. Next, she knocks out a Sniffet guard and takes his gun. Then she uses the gun to take out three more Sniffet guards. Before she leaves, she grabs her high-heeled shoes so that she still has a coordinated outfit later. Weirdly, though, these shoes, which I thought were provided by Ming, along with the rest of her outfit, have a brand name stamped on the sole. <laughs> These are Rain high heel shoes that they didn't bother to Greek for the film. So they're just a brand name that maybe Ming bought all these uniforms for the mm. the chambermaids uh, on Earth. But I like I like the, this this character is takes action. Yes, I, I like that she's just not like oh what will I do? No, she she makes a plan. She makes she, a plan. She grabs a gun. She kills a bunch of guys. <laughs> yeah, but then she proceeds to drop the gun. And put the shoes back on and continue yeah. to run. And I'm what like, lady, you you, ha- you were doing good. You had the gun. You had the shoes off. Get out of here. Yeah, this isn't <laughs> Jurassic World. You don't have to wear the shoes the whole time. <laughs> a whole room full of bald guys with bionic visors scan Mongo for Ming's missing fiance. And they find her. They dispatch Agent Zarkov to trap her. And we see her putting the high heels back on before she connects with Zarkov. Clytus learns from eavesdropping on their conversation that Flash is still alive and that he's with Aura on Arborea. Clytus opens an exit for them since they think Zarkov is under their control. They expect Zarkov will lead them to Flash, so they're just going to follow them. Next, they inform Ming that Flash is alive and he's pretty upset about it. Clytus asks for permission to pursue the traitor no matter who they are, and Ming says, stop at nothing. Flash and Princess Aura arrive at Prince Baron's den in the middle of an initiation ceremony. A group of Arboreans are banging sticks against a tree stump, and they dare a young man to place his arm into the stump. This is the test of manhood, and if he's stung by the monster within, he will die quickly from its poison unless he begs for death. The kid chooses poorly and is stung right away, and uh, he demands Baron kill him, and Baron just obliges without a second thought. Prince Baron is ecstatic to see Princess Aura is here, until he learns that she's brought along the resurrected Flash Gordon. Welcome back from the grave. I knew you were up to something, though I confess I hadn't thought of necrophilia. All I want you to do is keep him for me. Until my father has said his way with day I'll larder. keep him for you, all right? In my larder! Baron orders Flash drown in a swamp with a bunch of prisoners. His men lead Flash away, and Princess Aura negotiates for Flash's life. We cut back to Zarkov and Dale on a rocket bike leaving Ming's palace, Zarkov confesses that he was never brainwashed because he protected his mind by reciting Shakespeare, the Talmud, and Beatles music. It armored me, girl. They couldn't wipe those things away. Suddenly they're captured by a team of Hawkmen. Before Flash and the other Lizardmen and Hawkmen prisoners are lowered into the swamp, he makes one last effort to convince Baron that they should team up against Ming, and it doesn't work. Princess Ara is splayed out on a platform with her arms and legs held down by gauntlets. There's just like hands in the four corners of yeah. this slate that she's laying on. They look highly ineffective to hold somebody yeah. down. One of her <laughs> legs is like not even in the hand. 
General Kala is whipping her while interrogating her, or while Clytus interrogates her. She refuses to admit that she helped Gordon escape. Aura thinks that if her father knew about this, she'd have them all killed, and then learns that he's been standing there watching this whole time. <laughs> they just turn on the lights in the hallway, and he's standing right there just like eating a snack out of a cup. <laughs> Clytus calls for the boar worms to be applied, and we cut back to Arborea. Baron is second-guessing his commands for Flash's execution. His second-in-command, Fico, or Fico, plays a flute and doesn't seem to care either way. He suggests that there must be a way to destroy the Earthling and keep faith with the princess. It seems like Baron's idea here is to free Flash, but then force him to kill himself by way of their rite of passage, reaching into the stump. They pretend to throw Fico or Fico into the sinking cage with Flash, and Fico tells Flash that he'll lead him to the weapons, that he smuggled a key in here, and they're both going to get out together. Princess Aura confesses everything after the boar worms are applied, and Ming commands that she be banished to Phrygia the day after his wedding. She has to stay there for one year to cool her blood. And then after that, maybe they can marry her off to someone who deserves her treachery, which I think is his way of saying that Clytus can marry her. Yeah. But Clytus is very excited about the plan. The princess will marry me. Please tell me that Clytus's name in Flesh Gordon is Coitus. Clytus is not in the comics. He's the only character oh. that's not from the comics. He's original to the film. Mm. Three Hawkmen carry Zarkov and Dale to their Cloud City. It seems weird that you wouldn't just let them stay on the rocket bike and lead them there because it's got to be painful for everybody dragging them through the sky like this. Dale thinks they're safer with Voltan, but he immediately sees them as a gift for Ming. The way Brian Blessed plays this character reminds me a lot of the similarly named Vulcan character played by Oliver Reed and Terry Gilliam's The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Oh, yeah. Because as soon as they land in there, he, like, picks her up and puts her on the table mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. middle of all their food, and she's, you know, doing a little spin for them. Zarkov reminds Voltan that he hates Ming. Voltan doesn't think that they can take Ming right now with their current weapons, maybe in a year. Dale informs them that Gordon has survived single-handedly, and Voltan says, Gordon's alive? Gordon's alive? Which is apparently such a popular phrase in the UK that it's like a regular part of conversation that people have. <laughs> Zarkov tells them that Flash is in Arborea right now teaming up with Baron, and we cut back to Arborea as Flash is being surrounded by Baron, Fico, and their men, and being forced to reach into this tree stump. Him and Baron are taking turns playing Russian roulette with this thing and daring the creature inside to stab them. Baron reaches in twice and Flash follows, but on Flash's third reach into the stump, he pulls his arm out and requests that Baron kill him immediately. When Baron agrees to execute Flash, Gordon suddenly tackles him to the ground with one of the cheesiest lines in the film. Tricked you, Baron! Tricked you, Baron! Like <laughs> off! One move and you're looking for a new prince. Like a weird sound effect here. Baron calls off his men, insisting that he will follow Flash alone. Flash trudges right through a patch of quicksand and then disappears into it before grabbing a hold of a rubbery tree root and slowly pulling himself out. Uh, so this shot reminded me a lot of The Princess Bride because it it's exactly what happens when uh, Wesley pulls himself out of uh, the, the quicksand. Is it a tree root or a vine or something? That it's, he... a, it's a vine. Yeah. But, you know, but literally like the same angle and, and, and the same sort of action that looks, he's taking. Mm -hmm. It's probably the same VFX people because the, the consistency of the quicksand looks the same. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't doubt that this inspired that scene. Yeah. 
Just when he thinks he survived this swamp, giant spider legs wrap around him from below. And it's there's also like these bladders inflating yeah. around him. Mm-hmm. Uh, they begin to pull him underground until Baron hits the spider with a laser blast from his tiny crossbow. Why? Why <laughs> I would don't you do know. That? I th- just let the thing. You wanted yeah. him dead. Let the yeah. thing eat him. You wanted him to die, and you wanted it to not be your fault, right? <laughs> and then he killed this monster that could, so he could have kept his promise to Ara. And then immediately after that, he points the crossbow at Flash, like, "All right, now it's time to kill you, to intentionally break my promise." But the Hawkman arrived just in time to rescue Flash. Although I feel like they would get there and be like. This doesn't seem like they're teaming up. Yeah. I'm, we're going to go back to our planet because this isn't what you described was going to be here. Well, that's probably what leads into the fight. Yeah. Because like, it's like, uh, things aren't hashing out the way we wanted it. They take Baron and Flash to the Cloud City. Everyone heads to Voltan's kingdom. Baron is not happy to be taken prisoner by Voltan and reminds him of Article 17 of Ming's Law, the right to trial by combat. Is there such an article? I'm afraid there is. What a damn nuisance! Dale enters the throne room and sees Flash and runs to greet him. Flash! (laughs) Oh, Oh, it's so crazy. Last time I saw you, I prayed it was a dream. This time I'm praying it's not. Are you okay? I am now. Me too. Boy, have I got some crazy stories to tell you. Save them for our kids. Oh, I accept. Enough! Would you leave us alone? Oh, I just got engaged! Baron chooses to fight Flash, and the two men are placed on a disc in the middle of the throne room over a large pit. Spikes routinely pop out of holes in the disc. Each man is provided with a whip on the platform, and Baron draws first blood from Flash as Voltan picks up a remote control to tilt and raise the spikes of the disc. Apparently this whole thing was very freshly painted silver, and the actors kept getting silver spray paint on them, so they had to stop down and repaint the disc and change the actors. As the fight rages on, Dale shouts some words of encouragement. Flash, I love you! But we only have 14 hours to save the Earth! Baron gets the upper hand and holds Flash's head to a spike on the floor. Promise me if you kill me, you'll team up with Voltan and fight me! Just then, the disc tilts, and Baron is very nearly thrown over the edge, but Flash reaches down to save him. The disc flattens out and the two shake hands. Baron endorses Flash's humanity to the crowd. Suddenly, Clytus' ship is approaching, and Voltan orders his men to their posts. Clytus announces Zarkov is to be liquidated, and the fugitives must be handed over at once, or his kingdom will be blasted to atoms. Clytus informs Prince Baron that he's no longer a prince, as he was implicated in Aura's confession. Baron shoves Clytus off on Flash, who carries him out to the disc and just tosses him onto this flat of spikes. Mm -hmm. And Clytus is impaled in like three or four places. And he tries to get up once, but then collapses back to the floor. And his eyeballs and tongue just extrude through his golden mask. (laughs) This is the best scene in the whole movie. (laughs) And then the rest of his body just sort of melts away. Voltan is understandably upset with Flash because his entire kingdom is about to be destroyed. But Baron insists. You have shown us the way. Stand with us and fight. Against the Imperial fleet? It's the perfect time. They won't expect resistance. Voltan orders his people to evacuate before the kingdom is destroyed. Flash is prepared to make a silver parachute to jump down to Arborea. So I guess this city is literally directly above Arborea. Right. Well, it seems to be like pretty mobile. Yeah. But he they're able somehow to jump out of this and parachute down to Arborea. Yeah. But he doesn't get that far. It's just like Star Wars. Like yeah. the cloud city. Yeah. He's about to jump when Ming's ship arrives, and Ming sends a little shuttle to carry everyone but Flash, 
and leaves him here to be killed when the kingdom is destroyed. Ming makes Flash one last offer before he goes, a kingdom to rule as a subordinate of Ming. He tells him that the moon is very close to destroying the earth, and he could call off the attack if Flash agrees. Ming adds that after his earthquakes and tidal waves have ravaged the planet, they will be more malleable to his will. You mean slaves? Let's say they'll be satisfied with less. Prisoners with jobs. Okay, that's better, that's better. Flash asks about Dale and learns that Ming will marry her and repopulate the Earth with their kids. Flash turns down Ming's offer and they abandon him. They blast Vulton's kingdom with a beam from the ship and Flash falls into a chute and then slides right up to a rocket cycle, which is like almost the exact action of earlier this year in Empire Strikes Back mm -hmm. when Luke f just falls into a chute when he should have fallen out of this sky city. Yeah. Um, but he slides right up to this it's a rocket bike which i'm assuming is the volton equivalent of a rascal scooter or something yeah when your wings don't work anymore <laughs> and you still want to fly with your buddies he fires it up and he races out of the exploding kingdom just in time for the second time dale is certain of flash's death the hawkmen have collected in arborea and his men are saying we need to join flash's rebellion but then voltan says it's too late I, I can't join forces with a dead man and just then flash calls from the radio on his rocket cycle and volton is flabbergasted again i read you where are you flying blind on a rocket cycle flying blind on a rocket cycle they guide him to arborea in dale's bridal chamber she is preparing for the ceremony guards throw princess aura into the room and they have a sexy pillow fight on a giant round bed it's almost like my brilliant career levels of sexiness. Aura is trying to tell Dale that she switched sides and she convinces her when she breaks into tears. Aura gives Dale a powerful poison with which to kill her father Ming on their wedding night. Dale says, oh, I can't poison him. I promised to be a good wife. <laughs> <laughs> and this was in exchange for Ming sparing the lives of Baron and Zarkov. Why didn't she throw the earth in there? Like, Yeah, no, just those two. I don't care about anybody else. Aura points out that her father has never kept a vow, and Dale replies, I can't help that. Keeping our word is one of the things that make us better than you. Dale is escorted to her wedding preparation and cries. I'm lost, Aura. Nothing can save me now. General Kala receives word from the Bionic Eyes guy that Flash is incoming, and she opts to handle it herself to avoid upsetting Ming on his wedding day. A barrage of lasers turn Flash around, and Kala orders the dispatch of War Rocket Ajax, an attack ship. Flash leads the ship into the upper atmosphere and hides in a cloud. I'm realizing here, every time I hear the opening baseline of the Flash theme, I'm singing Dolly Parton's 9 to 5 in my head, because they start very similar, but the Flash <laughs> one is slightly faster tempo. It's like, dum 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 tumble out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen, <laughs> pour myself a cup of ambition. The war rocket waits outside the cloud, eventually electrifying it to try and kill Flash, but he's not inside, he's waiting behind it with all the Hawkmen. They eventually push Ajax through the cloud and are ambushed on the opposite side by Voltan's army. Die! <laughs> he's really chewing on every line. Mm -hmm. The war rocket does its best to defend against multiple waves of Hawkmen, but is overtaken and they kill nearly the entire crew. It's like the pirates in the island. Yeah. <laughs> but I also, I, I almost, in my mind, like this concept of, 
you know, the Ajax is coming through the cloud. Dive! And you just hear... Yeah, <laughs> they're all gone. <laughs> we, we, we got a bird strike. Yeah. Bird strike. <laughs> Flag it. Uh, Biro, Voltan's second-in-command, places a large mine on the outside of the ship, but he's unable to trigger the blast before he is shot down, and Flash moves in to help him. Then Voltan utters the sentence that Freddie Mercury must have found particularly inspiring. Oh, well... Who wants to live forever? As the line became the title of a song on their next film, Highlander. Voltan sweeps in and helps destroy the soldiers on the ship. For this entire scene, apparently, Voltan and Flash both couldn't help but go pew, pew, pew every time they fired their guns. <laughs> and they kept having to, like, reshoot things and change things up so that you wouldn't see their lips moving every time they pull their triggers. Flash gets to Biro on the ground who says, they just winged me. You're right. They just winged me. And I really wanted Flash to say, nah, man, you had those this morning. <laughs> Biro gives Flash the trigger and he blasts a hole in the exterior of the ship for the Hawkmen to get through. They start lobbing grenades around the control room of the ship before hijacking it. It just seems a bit careless. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and Voltan shoots a guy and it goes through the guy and then yeah, blows up through the compu- pilot's chair and then through a computer on the other side. <laughs> I was like, oh man, Ugh, is this thing going to turn around? I don't know. <laughs> General Kala announces to the crowd waiting to see the wedding that in spite of his vow to Dale, the prisoners Baron and Zarkov are to be publicly executed. So even before their wedding night, he was already forgetting the, the yeah. vow that he made. In which case, she would be within her rights to poison him that night. But she's not going to do it. In an elevator, Princess Ara kills the guard attending to her and rushes to the dungeon to free Baron and Zarkov. The dungeon has graffiti on the wall that reads, Long Live Flash which I think hints at internal issues with Ming's team mm-hmm. because I doubt Zarkov could have written this. Just as Ara enters, Baron's asking Zarkov, tell me more about this Houdini fellow. <laughs> and since they're both blindfolded, they expect that whoever's coming in is their executioner. Ara destroys the cameras and handcuffs and calls out to the control room, announcing a scanner malfunction, but she just uses her own voice. So right. General Kala is right. for sure knows it's her. Well, mm-hmm. and she's, yeah, she's got quite a identifiable accent. Yeah. <laughs> Scan the malfunction. Area 77 Delta. Under repair. They reach a security door with a new passcode, and Zarkov sets to work unlocking it with Aura's ring, while Baron and Aura share with each other how much they've changed during this rebellion. Zarkov correctly decodes the door. Ha! I thought it was one of the prime numbers of the Zeman series. I haven't changed. In trying to determine if the Zeman series was completely fabricated for the film, I could only find that the same line, 3,465,222. Say that again. 3,465,222. A prime number of the Zeman series. Was spoken by Kenneth Branagh in a 2004 movie called Five Children and It. Not to be confused with that horrendous looking Four Kids and It movie, where Michael Caine voices a magical CG monster on a beach that gets discovered by oh, four God. kids. Do you Ugh. remember that trailer? Yes. Yeah. In Five Children and It, Eddie Izzard voices the magical CG monster on a beach discovered by five children instead of four kids. Oh my goodness. Insanely, the two films are based on two different novels. What? <laughs> but the four kids novel is based on the five children novel, which <laughs> I didn't even realize book reboots were a thing. <laughs> But the Five Children novel was written by Edith Nesbitt in 1902 as a children's book. And then in 2012, Jacqueline Wilson adapted the story to modern day 
for a new huh. children's novel, and both books got films in the last 16 years. That's so weird. The five children's story also has a 1985 anime and a 1991 BBC series. This doesn't, I, I would have to go back and watch Stranger Things again. This doesn't have to do with the number that they use to unlock the Russian. No, it, that was like Avogadro's number or something, wasn't yeah. it? Was it? Okay. Yeah. I couldn't remember. It was some It was some math number. Yeah. But it was one that we know. It wasn't a made up one. That's true. Flash is in the captain's chair of War Rocket Ajax as he leads a flock of Hawkmen to Ming's palace. Flash sets a timer indicating Earth has less than four minutes until the moon destroys the planet. They tune the ship's radio to the wedding ceremony and Queen's Here Comes the Bride comes blaring out of the radio. A rocket flies by outside of the wedding dragging a banner that reads, All creatures will make merry. A second ship drags the rest of the message, Under pain of death. Two Sniffet soldiers walk Dale down the aisle, and she occasionally struggles against them. I was so sure that this was going to be the two guys that like just got Baron released Zarkov, from the dungeon. Yeah but it's not them. General Kala gets word that Ajax is returning, but comms are off for some reason, but she's 100% on top of it. She's like, are they on proper approach pattern? And he's like, well, no, now that you mentioned it, they're like, fire at them. Fire at them, it's my responsibility. Blow that up. It's like Rick and Morty. He's a spy, blow him up. I'm gonna go take a shit. But they start firing on the, the war rocket and they charge the lightning field, which is like a big force field of spiraling lightning around the palace. She seems like a very competent general. She announces to the entire planet of Mongo not to be alarmed by the laser blasts that it's all a salute to his majesty's wedding. And even uh, Ming believes this. Like he yeah. hears the announcement. He's like, oh, that's so nice of them. Voltan urges Flash to bail when the laser barrage gets really intense. But Flash says that there's no way that the rocket will hit their target if he doesn't keep flying it. He asks Voltan to tell Dale that he knows it would have been good. And Voltan ditches to lead the Hawkmen. Yeah, but he has got a great departing line that must be one hell of a planet you men come from not too bad voltan declares today is flash gordon's day i really wanted to like go back through the film and figure out exactly what day this is so we know when flash gordon day is mm. but uh there's not a lot to go off of we see baron and zarkov break into the war room where all the guys have their uh tech specs on and they demand to be taken to ming baron lasers a gun out of general kala's hand and when she refuses to cooperate, Zarkov tells Baron to steal an imager, one of the, the techno goggles off of the bald guy's faces. And when he tears off the goggles, <laughs> we see like springs and wires are embedded in the optical orbit. There's no eyes. It's like yeah. literally physically connected to their brains probably. And all the bald men just collapse like dominoes uh, when the first one dies from having a part of his face ripped off. Kala tries again to attack and Baron lasers her in the gut. This time she just melts into black blood on the floor. The man in charge of the laser blasting system phones in on a video screen to announce that Ajax is still approaching, but will surely be destroyed. And then Baron gets his Han Solo moment when the man asks for General Kala and he just fires a blast into the video screen. Whatever, boring conversation anyway. Zarkov wants to shut down the lightning field to save Flash, but Baron says, there's no time, I'm heading to Sector 9. And it's like, mm -hmm. I don't know what Sector 9 is, but it turns yeah. out that's where you go to turn off the lightning field. Yeah. So I don't know why he said that at all. Zarkov moves to the controls for the palace. There has to be a way of deactivating the lightning field. Bump, 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 tumble out of bed and a stumble to the kitchen. Baron kills like 15 more Sniffets on his way to the wedding. Ming reads his vows. You promise to use her as you will? Certainly. Not to blast her into space? 
until such time as you grow weary of her. I do. I do not. Less than two minutes left on the earth clock. The entire bridge of Ajax is on fire except for Flash's chair. Baron finds the man at the switch for the lightning field and shuts it down. Still dealing with the light laser fire, Flash is able to shoot back into the windows of the wedding ceremony, needlessly risking the life of Dale. Because he can't see what he's doing. The wedding guests scatter as Ajax comes crashing through the windows and impales Ming with its nose cone. Ming bleeds green as he slides off the cone, and there's about 20 seconds left until the moon hits the earth according to the timer. So for sure, no matter what anyone says moving forward, the earth is irreparably destroyed. Well, but even at the beginning of this film, this moon was already like 16 degrees off of yeah. where it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, it. I don't think that unless you went and specifically did something to reverse what was happening, there was no saving Earth no, in this scenario. <laughs> yeah, if Majora's Mask taught me anything, is that the moon doesn't have to be all that close. But then that game didn't teach you anything. I rage quit that game. I don't know. You know what? People really liked this uh, Ocarina of Time game. Let's put a clock in the top corner. And if you don't finish the game in time, then you have to start over. Flash chases down Ming with an enormous golden sword. He demands that Ming save the earth or he will die. And Ming has some solid last words here. You pitiful fool. My life is not for any earthling to give or take. Ming collapses and then disappears with a red glow into his power ring, which falls to the floor, clearly still alive. Mm -hmm. Pick up this ring, you idiot. The floating orb approaches Flash, and he draws his sword again, but it seems to have switched sides. Long live Flash! And I realize this thing is responsible for the dungeon graffiti. (laughs) The bots must have revolted first. (laughs) The orb tells him that he has saved the Earth to cheer him up about the certain complete destruction of Earth. Everyone alive celebrates Ming's death. Baron is named the King of Mongo, and Voltan is appointed General of the Armies. Baron invites them to stay, but Dale says she's a New York City girl, like that still exists. A flock of hawkmen take to the skies to spell out the word thanks in the sky, and then the word flash, in case they were curious who you're thanking. Yeah. <laughs> we see an insert of the ring on the ground as a glove snatches it up, and we hear Ming laughing. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Who picked it up? Everybody on his team was dead. Some gloved guy. I don't know. Or gal. I mean, it would have to be Aura, right? She was up on the stage with Baron. Everybody else is dead that could possibly have turned on them. Maybe it was the gooey puddle lady. She survived or it? Or Zarkov. Yeah. Oh, Double. you think he he went dark? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, like, because he's, he's pretty iffy. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Purely for research purposes... I watched Flesh Gordon for this review, <laughs> and it's honestly pretty funny. In one scene, Dale's dress is completely destroyed, as you might expect, and Dr. Jerkoff offers her, <laughs> offers her a replacement that he apparently kept on his experimental rocket, telling her, It was my mother's. She was buried in it. <laughs> and when they first land on Emperor Wang's subtly renamed planet Porno, Jerkoff takes several deep breaths before reporting, Good. There's oxygen on this planet. <laughs> they're chased through caves by stop motion animated penisauruses there's actually quite a bit of really impressive looking stop motion animation in the film <laughs> for what i thought it was supposed to be the lead stop motion animator on the project was jim danforth who has two oscar nominations for special effects and also worked on clash of the titans as harryhausen's assistant he has credits on caveman 
Conan the Barbarian, Creepshow, The Thing, and Neverending Story, among many others. Rick Baker also worked on the film. <laughs> the movie came close to getting an Oscar nomination for its special effects, but the Academy decided against awarding special effects at all that year because so few films had any in 74. Hmm. There's a pirate queen in the movie who wears an eye patch over one eye and a larger one over one boob. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also convinced that the aesthetics of Doctor Strange's sling ring were stolen directly from Flesh Gordon because this is how Princess Amora is able to communicate with people over long distances. A circle opens up in the sky with sparks circling around mm -hmm. it and she just talks through the circle. There's a really nice Blu-ray transfer and I'd honestly recommend it to anyone looking for some of the silly fun from this film with slightly lower production value and significantly less clothing. W A N Emperor Wang is the one for me. Without him, the planet Porno would be ever so forlorn. Our director here was Mike Hodges. His first feature was Get Carter, the original Get Carter. And just before this, he had written and went uncredited as the director of Omen 2. He also wrote and directed an adaptation of Michael Crichton's The Terminal Man. And after this film, he wrote and directed something called Black Rainbow, with Rosanna Arquette, Jason Robards, and Tom Hulse. Writer Lorenzo Semple Jr. also wrote 120 episodes of the Adam West Batman series and the 66 Batman. I, th I think he didn't write that many episodes, but he has writing credits on them for characters that he created. Um, but he also wrote the 66 Batman feature film, and he wrote Pretty Poison for A Change of Seasons fire director, Noel Black. He wrote Papillon, the Parallax View, The Drowning Pool, Three Days of the Condor, The 76 King Kong with our previous film's DP, Richard Klein. After this, he wrote Never Say Never Again, The Connery Bond from 83. The adaptation here was done by Michael Allen, who wrote the screenplays for Enter the Dragon with our previous film's composer, Lalo Schifrin. Also, the story for I'll Be Home for Christmas starring JTT. Characters by Alex Raymond. He's obviously credited in all previous adaptations of Flash Gordon, except for Flesh Gordon, even though Flesh Gordon just used the name Dale Arden without changing it at all. Um, I feel like he should get one character credit for that. <laughs> uh, he also gets character and creator credits for the full Jungle Jim franchise, which saw eight feature films released in six years, all starring Johnny Weissmuller, who's best known for leading the Tarzan films. Producer Dino De Laurentiis has 185 producer credits, including Fellini's La Strada, Danger Diabolique, Barbarella, Death Wish, Three Days of the Condor, The 76 King Kong, and Orca, before Flash. Yeah. As impressive a resume as that already was before the 80s, after The Flash, he produced Halloween 2, Ragtime, Conan the Barbarian, The Dead Zone, Dune, Cat's Eye, Year of the Dragon, Raw Deal, Maximum Overdrive, Manhunter, Blue Velvet, Army of Darkness, U571, Hannibal, Red Dragon, and Hannibal Rising. Because he had the rights to Manhunter. Right, right. And so he made Silence of the Lambs sequels with them. The music here was provided by Queen. Impossible to sort through all of their music credits on IMDb, but this was the first film they had provided a full set of original songs for. The second was Highlander. And the title song from that film, I said, is probably a reference to Voltan's line in this one. DP Gilbert Taylor, uh, he was the DP on Dr. Strangelove, A Hard Day's Night, The Omen, and Star Wars A New Hope. Sam J. Jones was Flash Gordon. Right out of high school, he served in the Marines. After completing his services, he moved to Seattle, intending to play for the Seattle Seahawks, but was turned down and played semi-pro for their practice team, the Flyers. 
At the same time, he began modeling, appearing in a full frontal Playgirl spread in 75 under the name Andrew Cooper III. Flash was his second film after 10 in 1979. Jones splurged his paycheck for the film on fancy cars and houses, relying on an income he expected from a contracted second and third Flash Gordon film. But his relationship with producer Dino De Laurentiis had so soured by the film's close and the film underperformed expectations, so the sequels were dropped. He worked mostly TV jobs through 85 and returned to film as the lead character Gordon in a movie called Jungle Heat. His career was essentially resurrected by Seth MacFarlane when he played himself in Ted in 2012, Mark Wahlberg's character having been a lifelong fan of this film, and many of the film scenes are parodied within Ted. Yeah. Thanks, Flash. There you go, my friend. Thank you. Death to me! <laughs> yes! His next feature was something called Fury of the Fist and the Golden Fleece, wherein he plays a character named Flash. So he's played himself, Gordon, and Flash since playing Flash Gordon. It sounds like a low-budget Expendables type of film, but listen to this cast. Danny Trejo, Jason and Jeremy London, Sean Whalen, Sam Jones, Michael Dudikoff, Bill Goldberg, Richard Grieco, Ron Jeremy, Ernie Reyes Jr., Tiny Lister, Michael Winslow, Jack O'Halloran, Chuck Zito, Tommy Davidson, Don Wilson, and Don Fry. Do you remember Don Fry? That's like the American guy that was a wrestler in Japan and was oh. in a couple Godzilla movies. He's awesome. Sam also recently starred in a documentary called Life After Flash that tells you more about his life after this film. Melody Anderson played Dale Arden. This was her first film, and she comes back as Janet Gillis in Dead and Buried next year. In the early 90s, she played Natalie Marlowe Dillon in 61 episodes of All My Children. Max von Sydow was Emperor Ming. He began his career working with Swedish director Ingmar Bergman in films like The Seventh Seal, Wild Strawberries, and The Virgin Spring. His career in American film began largely as Father Marin in The Exorcist, and then as Jobert in Three Days of the Condor from the writer of this film. After this, he would take on similarly epic roles, such as King Osric in Conan the Barbarian, Brewmaster Smith yeah. in Strange Brew, <laughs> Blofeld in Never Say Never Again, an uncredited role in Ice Pirates, Dr. Kynes in Lynch's Dune, the voice of Vigo the Carpathian in Ghostbusters 2, though he goes uncredited in that film, He's Judge Fargo in Judge Dredd. He's Papanow in The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. He's Lorsan Tekka in The Force Awakens. And his last big thing was his appearance as the Three-Eyed Raven on Game of Thrones. And he passed away in March of this year, 2020, not 1980. Topol plays Dr. Hans Zarkov. He's best known for his appearance in Fiddler on the Roof, and he also appears as Milos Colombo in For Your Eyes Only. Ornella Muti played Princess Aura, uh, she has mostly Italian films outside of this, and she's also Sofia Provolone in Oscar with Sylvester Stallone. Timothy Dalton played Prince Baron. He was Agatha Christie's husband, Archie, in Michael Apted's Agatha in 1979. He was first considered for the role of James Bond back in 68 when Connery first quit. He turned it down because he was in his 20s and not prepared to take on the role from Connery, obviously. Pierce Brosnan was all set to take over the role of Bond from Roger Moore in the 80s after the cancellation of his series Remington Steel, Unfortunately for Brosnan, the publicity of his being chosen as Bond caused the ratings for Remington Steel to pick up, and NBC decided to renew it after all, and they wouldn't let him out of his contract, so Eon Productions went back to offer the role to Dalton a second time, and this time he accepted. He got two films, The Living Daylights and License to Kill, before they went back to Brosnan for Goldeneye. Dalton's outings are underrated to be sure, but we'll get to them in their own time. 
Of all of the Bonds, I think Timothy Dalton by far has the best non-Bond films. He later appeared in The Rocketeer, Hot Fuzz, Brosnan would appear in the third Cornetto film, The World's End, and in the Toy Story universe, Dalton provides the voice of Shakespearean actor toy Mr. Pricklepants. Mm -hmm. He is currently Niles Calder on Doom Patrol, which I've only seen a little bit of, but it seemed fun. And, and uh, what was that? Uh, Penny Dreadful was a big thing for Was him? he on that too? Yeah. Brian Blessed played Prince Voltan. Uh, he's a very Shakespearean actor. Most of his TV work is miniseries versions of, of play adaptations. He also appears in some feature films, for instance, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves as Lord Loxley. He came back to the Robin Hood story as Friar Tuck in the 2018 Robin Hood. He's Pozzo in Waiting for Godot. He's Hamlet's father in the Branock 1996 film. He's Boss Nass, the voice of Boss Nass in The Phantom oh. Menace. And uh, he provides the voice of Clayton in Disney's Tarzan. But he's probably best known as Atticus in the first of two MacGyver TV movies, MacGyver Lost Treasure of Atlantis, where he's basically just playing the John Rice davies character. Mm -hmm. Peter Weingard was Clytus. I don't recognize a lot of his credits, but uh, he was the only one that was totally original to the film. And I uh, liked the character. Um, he, he's in The Innocence, um, but his character has no real speaking part. Yeah. I figured if they were going to cover his face, it probably wasn't an actor whose face I would recognize. Mm -hmm. Mary Angela Mulatto played General Kala. Again, I don't recognize many of her credits. They're mostly Italian, but she is beautiful, and her character is actually gender-swapped from the one in the comics. Originally, Kala was the king of the shark men, which I honestly cannot wait to see whatever that looks like in the remake. <laughs> in the meantime, we'll just have to settle for King Shark in James Gunn's Suicide Squad next year. John Osborne played the Arborian Priest. He has an Oscar for writing Tom Jones in 1963, which would also take home the Oscars for Best Music Director and Picture. Richard O'Brien played Fico or Fico. He was Riff Raff in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And Flash Gordon was there in silver underwear. And came back for the sequel Shock Treatment, but as a different character, Dr. Cosmo McKinley. He's also Pierre Le Pew in Ever After. And Mr. Hand in Dark City. Yeah, Mr. Hand. I I recognized him immediately. I mean, it it doesn't help. It helps that he's bald in this as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I was like, oh, that's Mr. Hand. Yeah. Well, I I I thought he looked familiar, and then he started speaking, and I'm like, you <laughs> yeah. cannot. That voice is yeah. unmistakable. He also provides the voice of Lawrence Fletcher in 96 episodes of Phineas and Ferb. John Hallam played Luro. He's PC McTaggart in The Wicker Man. He's the red-headed Baron in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves with Brian Blessed, and Tyrion in Dragon Slayer. He's also Lamson in Life Force. Philip Stone played Zogi, the High Priest. That's the guy who's marrying them. Uh, he played Grady in The Shining earlier this year. He's also Alexander DeLarge's father in A Clockwork Orange, and he's Captain Blumbert in Temple of Doom. William Hootkins played Munson, the assistant to Dr. Zarkov, who was crushed by an airplane. We just had him as Colonel Taylor in Bad Timing, and he'll be back for Sphinx next year. He's Major Eaton in Raiders, the guy who says, Top men. Next year. He's Harry Howler in Superman 4. He's Eckert in Burton's first Batman. He also appeared in the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles as Sergei Diaghilev, who we saw earlier this year in the movie Nijinsky. In the episode, Indiana Jones is friends with Picasso, who gets him a job working on Diaghilev's ballets to track down a trio of spies. 
the episode is actually directed by Terry Jones. Hmm. I think I'd want to watch that one. Uh, he's also Porkins. Oh, is he? Star Wars. Oh, there you go. Stanley Labor played Mongan Doctor. Uh, that's the guy who illegally brought Flash back to life. He also appears in Superman 4 as General Romoff. John Morton played airline pilot. He's Rebel Force Dak in Empire Strikes Back earlier mm. this year. And he's Nate in Superman 2 next year. Burnell Tucker played the other pilot. He's a rebel officer in Empire. NASA man in Life Force. Secret Service man in The Omen. And agent in Superman 1. Robbie Coltrane played the man at the airfield who loaded all their luggage before their, their fateful flight. He plays Rune in Crawl. He worked opposite Brosnan's Bond in Goldeneye and The World is Not Enough, but he's probably best known for playing Hagrid in the Harry Potter films. His role in the film was briefly considered for Buster Crabbe, who played Gordon in the original serials, but someone from the cast and crew who found out about that called Crabbe to tell him before Dino De Laurentiis decided against it. And so they had to call him back and say, oh yeah, never mind, they're not doing that. He's also really great in uh, the Neil Jordan movie Mona Lisa. Oh, okay. With, it's starring Bob Hoskins, but uh, he's he's in it quite a bit. Uh, John Hollis played Clytus Observer Number Two. That's the guy who gets his eyes ripped out. Uh, he's a Krypton Elder in Superman and Superman Two. He was also Lobot earlier this year in Empire Strikes Back. Uh, he's basically second in command for Lando Calrissian. So uh, a lot of this was shot in England, I, I yeah, because you're getting a lot of these these uh, supporting British actors. Yeah. Uh, the guy with his ears covered with stuff in the Cloud City, but here his eyes are covered, so hopefully there's something where his mouth is covered with technology so we can get the see no evil, hear no evil, say no evil trilogy. Paul Bentall played Clytus's pilot. Um, he played Jacob in First Night, and he plays Eddie Marson's dad in The World's End. Bogdan Komanowski played the Lieutenant of Ming's Air Force. He played Klotkoff in A View to a Kill with Roger Moore. George Harris, Prince Thune of Ardentia, the guy who gets stabbed and has blue blood at the beginning. Uh, in the comics, he's the king of the Lion Men. Again, someone remake this, please. I want to see that. He was Katanga in Raiders of the Lost Ark next year. He's Morty in Layer Cake with another James Bond, Daniel Craig, which I think establishes a connection to every James Bond actor over yeah. the course of this cast. Uh, he's also Kingsley Shacklebolt in the Harry Potter films. Deep Roy played Princess Aura's pet. Yeah, unmistakable. Yeah. Like yeah. When, when they showed him, it was like, <laughs> like oh, there's Deep Roy. It took two frames. Yep. It just was like, there's Deep Roy. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't age. No, he, he doesn't. It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy how he doesn't age. Uh, he plays Teeny Weenie, the writer of The Racing Snail and Neverending Story. He's Keenzer in JJ's Star Treks. He's General Bones Apart, the voice of General Bones Apart in Corpse Bride. He's all of the Oompa Loompas in Burton's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. He's an Egyptian guard in Transformers Revenge of the Fallen, Mr. Soggy Bottom in Big Fish, and he's the Tin Man in Return to Oz. Uh, he's also uncredited as Droopy McCool in Return of the Jedi. I don't know who Droopy McCool is, but that was my nickname in high school. Now, Droopy McCool has to be one of Max Rebo's... Not Max Rebo. Who's the, the band from yeah, Return of the Jedi? queen it was max rebo that was right why'd you second guess yourself frederick warder played special movement i don't know what that means but he was 004 in the living daylights andy bradford played hawkman he was 009 in octopussy 
Viva played one of the Cytherian girls. She was Gretel McAlbertson in Midnight Cowboy. She's Jennifer in Play It Again, Sam, and we had her earlier this year as the ex-queen in The Forbidden Zone. Malcolm Dixon played a dwarf, one of the dwarfs at the uh, opening ceremony where they're presenting their right, right, right. Uh, donations to Ming. He played an Ewok warrior in Return of the Jedi. He's in the Goblin Corps in The Labyrinth. He played Strutter in Time Bandits and an Oompa Loompa in the original Willy Wonka. He also played a member of the band in Nelwyn in Willow. Nelwyn is the town that Willow is from at the beginning of the movie. Tiny Ross played a dwarf. Uh, he's also Vermin in Time Bandits. Mike Edmonds played a dwarf. He was Og in the Time Bandits and Log Ray in Return of the Jedi and Ugnot earlier this year in Empire Strikes Back. He'll show up next year as a dwarf on Clash of the Titans. He also played Tick in Legend, Stretch in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and a Gringotts Goblin in a couple Harry Potter movies. Rusty Goff played Dwarf, also an OG Oompa Loompa. He's Kabe or Cabe, Jawa, and the Gonk Droid in A New Hope. He's also Lamuff in History of the World Part 1, and he's another Gringotts Goblin. Peter Burroughs was another Dwarf. He appears in Dark Crystal. He's an Ewok in Jedi. He's a Goblin Corps in Labyrinth. He's a Nelwyn Villager in Willow. And another goblin in harry potter but he also played marvin the robot in the latest hitchhiker's guide adaptation and kenny baker uh the last dwarf i'll mention here uh he was r2d2 in all the r2d2 stuff he was a plumed dwarf in elephant man earlier this year he's fidget in time bandits and he's another member of the band in nelwyn and willow yeah so it's like we have almost a total time bandits reunion, reunion. yeah we're just make, missing uh, Rappaport and Jack Purvis. That's crazy that Jack Purvis isn't in here because he's like one of the bigger names of the whole group. Right. Other than Kenny Baker, probably. I'm still hung up on Deep Roy playing the Tin Man in yeah. Return to Oz. I have to watch it again. I realize it's not TikTok. Yeah, I'm, I'm saying he's not TikTok. No, no, he's not TikTok. He's the Tin Man. I just don't remember the Tin Man, the being tin in man it at all. speaking. No, I do remember. The he tin- doesn't speak. Wait, so he's in that costume? He's in the costume. But the costume is like... Tall. It's tall yeah, and the thin. neck is too thin for a human neck. He's just in the body of but it. But the legs don't... The legs are skinny little like... It doesn't walk around a lot. Okay. I it's just, for scenes where he's he's puppeteering so from he's inside. So he's literally just in the chest puppeteering arms? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Weird. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, again, Kenny Baker in R2-D2. I guess, yeah. yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Um, yeah, Kenny Baker's not even really doing anything because someone else is piloting the thing. Did he even have to be in it? Probably turns the head. Yeah, I think I think he turns the yeah. head and just. <laughs> just the... <laughs> yeah, it's real. It's it's like uh, it's an art being yeah. able to turn this head slightly at, to an angle that doesn't matter to anything. <laughs> this is a big thumbs up for me. Uh, this is my first time seeing this. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, I I wish I had watched it a little bit uh, grander because I I you know I, I watched this on my my computer. Sure. Uh, and like not not my laptop, which is much smaller. I watched. I have a nice big monitor for my desktop. Yeah. But still, I wish I would have given this film a little bit of a grander uh, experience. Sure. Uh, and maybe that's probably should be true about a lot of the movies that we've watched. But, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, this is definitely a thumbs up. Uh, it it. Everyone was in on it. Like everyone, I don't I feel, think they were. No, but it it feels like they are watching the movie. But I think there's a few people here that are just trying to be in a real action adventure movie. And okay, they don't, they don't get the joke. 
but there was also a, a big language barrier because half the cast was italian and half of them were mm. english speaking yeah i give it a thumbs up this is also the first time i've seen this movie yeah. um i didn't know what to expect i actually knew nothing about this going in i you know i've, I've heard of it but um i thought flash gordon had superpowers but he's just a dude just that a plays dude. football. Yeah. <laughs> like, I was really surprised. I'm like, when do we get to the superpowers part? <laughs> yeah, no, no superpowers nope. other than a proficiency at throwing footballs and uh, and just really good morals, I guess, or is his superpowers. Yeah. Though the implication of the film is that everyone on Earth has these morals, which I don't think is the case. Well, also, I think it's 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 this case of Ming's, Ming's army is actually not that great. And that's the threat for Ming is that he has to keep. He doesn't want anybody to notice. <laughs> that's why he keeps <laughs> them all warring with each other because, like, he's like, yeah, these guys aren't the best. Yeah. Um, I got to make sure that these guys don't attack me because they could totally take me in a fight. Yeah. I feel like they make a couple of football jokes, but not enough. I, I, that would would be one thing I'd want more of. Would be more football puns or references, like like when he's reaching into the stumps, like second down. Yeah, and I was like, "Oh man, I wouldn't. I don't want this to go on for four, though." Yeah, like, but uh, I or he should have said, "Going for, I'm gonna go for two. Yeah, like, 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 I don't know, like, because the whole concept of him being a football star plays almost no part. <laughs> yeah, they really drop it after scene. that first that yeah. first throne room scene. So I'm surprised that you want more football references because I figured you wouldn't get them. Like, well, I, I, I felt I, like I understood <laughs> too much of this movie. You know, I, <laughs> I watch a lot of football. Do you? Oh. I do. I, I'm not, I don't care, but I like spending time with my father. What if he farted and went safety? <laughs> Would that work? That seems in character. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really like this movie. I love the costumes. I love, I, I disagree with Lorenzo Semple Jr. that this couldn't work as a comedy because I think it's actually ideal to do it in a comedic way i don't i think it doesn't make sense to do this as a straightforward sci-fi story um and i think i agree with kurt russell that there was nothing for the lead character to do which is why it had to be played by like a dumb jock guy that Mm -hmm. that was like just playing every every line like he was an idiot um because i think that that character works so much better when you think he's just a big dummy who's nice yeah um I agree. I think it act- it actually has to be a comedy because so much of the core concepts of what Flash Gordon is is just too ridiculous yeah, to it's, be it's, in a serious it's movie. It's outdated. It's it yeah. doesn't work in the present anymore. Well, and and I like I like the attempt to capture vintage visual effects mm-hmm. where where you have like these ship models of just like, you know, it's not like Star Wars where you have ships swooping and moving around. You're getting no. The ship is always like facing the same direction as it's moving. Yeah. Um, uh, like the details of, like again, Star Wars, which came much earlier. Yeah. But when you see a planet in Star Wars, it's got gas clouds and 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 weather. But when you see Earth from space in this, it's completely cloudless, and all all the continents are the same color because yeah. as if it was like from from a 1940s. Just a map. Yeah. Uh, like cereal it, it's it, the opposite problem of oh god book two earlier this year where there were clouds in the foreground and, uh, on top <laughs> yeah. of the atmosphere of the planet um, <laughs> yeah yeah but no it's it's wonderful it's a lot of fun and i love 
the I almost said Christopher Plummer. I love the way Max von <laughs> Sydow plays Ming. He plays that character 100% straight. Mm-hmm. I mean, he does have that one joke at the beginning where he says something along the lines of, uh, are you sure they're taking the right pills and maybe mm-hmm. we should fire their trainer? And then the vows are a little silly. But everything else about him, he's just he's just totally 100% playing this character for who right. he is. And he knew the comics and he loved the character before. Like, same with Voltan both of those those actors actually knew and loved those characters specifically before this movie was made i feel like you have to go into the role of ming being a super fan because otherwise yeah. why would you but do this? that's what when you go through the list and you're like fellini was a ten- why the fuck would fellini touch this with a hundred foot pole yeah and it's like fellini loved that comic strip as a kid oh well, why would nicholas about- rogue and it's like oh he loved the comic as a kid that's all these what people I felt actually about the queen music i'm like is this queen what is happening yeah. <laughs> it's such a delightful soundtrack too we haven't mentioned it really but um everything they do is wonderful and um Howard Blake, I think is the guy's name that did the orchestral composition for the rest of the movie. Obviously great work, but, um, but the queen stuff just really puts it over the top. I think without that, um, this movie is not nearly as well remembered as it is. I do think that had Arnold gotten the part that this would be an even bigger film than it is Mm. because I think he could still play the like sort of dumb guy. That's the hero especially if you bleached his hair blonde. But yeah. it would be such like a talking point of people would be like, how have you not seen Flash Gordon? It's Arnold Schwarzenegger's like first big movie. Right. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's a lot of fun. That's basically what I have to say about it. It's it's a really, really fun movie that I could put on almost any time. The first act does have some pacing issues, but uh, once it gets going, it's nonstop. Yeah. Um, I kind of think of things like, Mom and Dad Save the World. It reminds me like of things that came after this. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen Mom and Dad Save the I World. I haven't. <laughs> um, it's very much done in this style. I, I feel like this is something that needs to come back. Like, like I a, can't believe it hasn't been rebooted between 1980 and now. In the last mm-hmm. 40 years, nobody has touched this. Because this movie wasn't like well-received by critics. It came out in 1980. It cost uh, between 20 and $27 million to make. And it made its money back in the U.S. just barely. But then it blew up in the U.K. They loved it. So it turned a considerable profit, enough to warrant making a second movie. I think that if Sam Jones hadn't gotten in such a fight with Dino De Laurentiis, we would for sure have at least two, if not three, of these. And I would love to see a second and third of these with this cast coming back. Mm -hmm. Not now. No, but I would I would love I, that's one of the things I'm going to ask my AI to just print a Blu-ray for me mm-hmm. when when <laughs> it gets that deep fake yeah. all of this. Yeah. I could just be like, "Hey uh, Siri, show me what the next two Flash movies would have looked like," and they'd be like, "Boom, here you go." And I, I think they could have been extraordinary. All right, we've we've said three ups. Mm-hmm. What are we doing, Letterbox, Jess? Well, after discussing it some, I uh, actually brought it up a little bit higher on my list because um, it's just silly and it's it's an enjoyable, silly film. So I would watch it, you know, anytime anybody put this on, I'd, yeah. I'd sit down and watch it with them. Um, so I have it in 28th place. It is below uh, Raise the Titanic and above Motel Hell. All right. Richard. Uh, I actually have it in 25, so pretty close to Jesse. Um, it's right below used cars and right above Little Miss Marker. I have it in seventh. Whoa. Oh, your uh, top ten. Yeah, it's just under the island, and it's just above Heaven's Gate. 
Uh, but it's just a lot of fun. And uh, like we've said, I, I would watch this anytime I found it on because it's that much fun. I think that's about everything for this one. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show. And if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can also support the show through Patreon.com slash VintageVideoPodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Popeye our second consecutive adaptation of a character from a King Features comic, which IMDb describes like so. The adventures of the famous sailor man and his friends in the seaside town of Sweet Haven. We leave you now with the trailer for Popeye. What am I? I'm Popeye, the sailor, and I am what I am, what I am, and I am what I am, and that's all that I am, cause I am what I am. Uh, you got it? I think so, yeah. And I've got a lot of muscle, and I only got one eye, and I've never heard nobody, and I'll never tell a lie. Talk to me bottom, from the bottoms to me top, that's the way it is, to the day that I drop. Must trust only, baby. You're a baby. It says here, right there, right. Robin Williams, <laughs> Shelley Duvall, You're me in Popeye. I said for you. Fui. 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 Fui.